Hi, I'm Dalton. And I'm Grace. Welcome back to our final episode of Season 7. Our guest this week is Geopolitics fellow Joe Crowley. As a 10-term congressman, Representative Crowley served New York for 20 years as he rose to become chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. In the 2018 primary election, he was defeated by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a surprising upset. But before he shares some of his experiences, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Representative Crowley, thanks for joining us on Fly on the Wall today. Sure. Great to be with you all. Um, so just to kick us off here, we know you served as state rep and also as the local chair of the Queens Democratic Party. And mm-hmm. so can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start in New York state politics? Oh, boy. It goes back a ways. I was involved in Mario Cuomo's first run for when he ran for mayor, actually, in 1977. <clears throat> I was um, uh, a teenager um, and uh, uh, my uncle Walter was um, a civic leader and attorney in Queens and had gone to law school with Mario Cuomo. So when Mario Cuomo ran for mayor the first time, my uncle was engaged in that campaign and he had us out handing out leaflets and literature uh, on, on cars on, and, you know, people's stoops um, and, uh, you know, really getting out there and, and uh, participating at a very, very early age. And voting was always something that was very important and our family was always emphasized. And I think um, aside from that, my uncle and my father were really, I think, uh, and my family were motivated by the, the Kennedy experience, you know, the, 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 the coming full term, I think, of Irish America in America, where had, they had met such great success, but had, uh, the, the presidency was always a bit aloof. And, you know, in, in 1960, uh, Kennedy's election, I think, meant something especially to Irish America. And my, my, um, <clears throat> all four of my grandparents were from Ireland. Um, Primarily, uh, three of my four grandparents were, were from the north of Ireland. So uh, we, they knew political strife, they knew discrimination, they knew all those things that drove them to America. And maybe that was an incentivized, uh, incentivizing uh, our, our greater participation in politics here. And then, um, uh, you know, America didn't win there, but then when he ran for uh, governor in 1982, my uncle was supportive of him then, and I was helpful in that campaign. In um, 1983 or so, I was an intern in Mario Cuomo's office uh, as a student at Queens College, the City University of New York. I interned in um, Mario Cuomo's office and worked thereafter for uh, quite a bit uh, with the in the office of Bob Sullivan um, uh, and Dick Starkey, who were part of the communications team. And um, Bob Sullivan was a pollster uh, prior to working in the administration himself. And, we did a lot of statistical analysis um, on a myriad of issues. And then in 1984, my uncle ran for uh, Congress, but then Geraldine Ferraro, who was our congresswoman, ran for, um, for VP on the Democratic ticket. And um, after that, um, uh, well, I, as a result of that, my uncle found himself in a four-way race and uh, did not win that election. It was uh, won by my predecessor, Tom Manton. Uh, but my uncle then became a city councilman uh, in the city, and I worked with him uh, uh, in a unpaid way. Um, and then uh, my uncle passed away in uh, 1985, and then um, uh, unexpectedly, uh, or suddenly, I should say, and then... Um, uh, about six months later, 
at a local state assemblyman passed away and I found myself in a seven-way primary. I was uh, looking to go to law school. My father said, you can always go to law school. You can't always go to the New York State Legislature. And um, Tom Manton, who was someone I really had no regard for, or little regard because he defeated my uncle, he actually approached me and asked me if I would consider running for the assembly. And talking over my family, my, my dad in particular, I ran. I was successful and won. And I served for 12 years there. And, uh, you know, um, it was it ended up in a 32-year um, stint in elective office. Yeah, so going off of that, can you tell us the story of how you transitioned from that local politics to the national politics? Well, I was in the state legislature um, for 12 years uh, by that point in 1998. And in fact, uh, um, was engaged to be married in October of 1998. And um, uh, was going along as though I was going to be reelected to the, or was going to run for reelection to the state assembly. And um, I remember being uh, asked to come to uh, my, my, uh, uh, my campaign manager's uh, office and presented with what's called the declination certificate, you know. And looking over and it said I was declining one of the assembly and I was, what's that all about? You know, I'm gonna run for the assembly in my mind. Then he showed me a declination from um, my predecessor for Congress and I said, so if I sign this, that means I'm not going back to the state assembly. They were saying that to him. He said, exactly. So um, I'm fully really understanding every component in terms of all that. But um, in essence, my predecessor, Tom Manton, had decided not to run for election after uh, some thought, I guess. And unbeknownst to me, I found out later that he, um, um, he was dealing with some health issues that uh, no one knew about. You know, I certainly didn't know about either. Um, ultimately, um, several years later, he passed away. Um, and uh, um, I found myself on the ballot as the Democrat in the November election and won election to the, to the House and then served there for, um, for 10 terms uh, for 20 years in the House of Representatives, moved my way up to the ranks in the House. But, um, but I, had, I, had, I had known primaries very well and, and the uh, been involved in many, many primaries in the state assembly as well throughout my years in Congress as well. So, um, uh, and, and general elections. And ultimately, you know, the, the ultimate primary is my last one, I guess, uh, which was not the, the greatest for me, but uh, uh, I would not have traded a moment for uh, that outcome. Yeah, so you rose quite methodically through the ranks of the House leadership, uh, the Democratic leadership when you were in Congress. How is that process usually done? Is it based on experience, uh, fundraising, policy agenda? You know, how did you rise so methodically? There are very, there are a lot of, of facets that go into, you know, what uh, drives or motivates, and then what you know turns into success in terms of advancement. One is I, I was motivated. I wanted to be in the leadership. I think, um, especially coming from a Democratic district. Um, what would distinguish me more amongst Democrats in my own community um, than being an elected leader of the Democratic Caucus? In my freshman term, I was actually uh, elected uh, president, one of the co-presidents of the freshman class, uh, which immediately distinguished me. And I think having had, having had served in the New York State Legislature for 12 years, yeah, I was described as kind of like the AAA of the minor leagues. Um, you know, New York, California, Illinois, you know, Florida, uh, Michigan, some of these little larger states that have more full-time legislatures. 
uh, technically part-time, but much acting much more like full-time legislatures. I had that experience and that wealth to bring to it. Many of my other colleagues were coming in for the first time. They were, that was their first time as a legislator. They had been farmers or they'd been businessmen and women or had come, some, some had come from other legislatures as well. Um, but New York's New York, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, I guess, is part of it. I think it's part of my persona as well. My, uh, I, I like people and, uh, I, I always want to learn more about my colleagues and what made them tick where they came from. Um, I think, uh, those are some of the motivating factors. Um, I think having things from part and the wealth of experience that I had, uh, I think was something that I wanted to, uh, to develop and further. So those are all the kinds of things that go into it. But I think the ability to raise money for your colleagues, the, the desire to do that, wanting to help be in the majority um, was something that, that I was noted for. And by the way, I, was always, I wasn't always successful initially either. I ran into some roadblocks along the way, including losing my first one for leadership for vice chair of the caucus, which I learned a great deal from and was able to you know, use that as an experience to help catapult me further on down the road. So as you ascend party leadership, how do you balance those obligations without losing touch with your constituents? It's a great question. Um, you know, and there's always naysayers, I think, no matter, you know, what you try to do. And uh, uh, I think, you know, the higher you move up in the ranks of leadership, the more responsibility you have at time in Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, the more junior members of Washington are not necessarily required to be at meetings that more senior members or members of leadership would be in. So, um, you know, I was open to that criticism um, that I accepted. Um, that first and foremost, I think if you're in elective office, yeah, you, you need to be comfortable with the notion or idea that not, not everyone is going to support you, that everyone's going to agree with you, everything you're doing. And and so I was also laid bare to those criticisms. But I thought at the same time that by advancing myself in leadership and being more relevant to what happens in the House of Representatives, what happens in national government, made my district more relevant, made my constituency even more engaged in some respects or important um, to that and the experience that my constituency had. So... Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think there is always a, you know, there's a very push as a pull, so to speak, and and I accepted that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I do think that more often than not, people were supportive uh, of my movement. And I think took some pride in the fact that I was moving up in the ranks of the, uh, the House leadership. So during your years on Capitol Hill, who was a colleague that you built a surprising relationship with? Oh gosh, um, there, there have been a lot. Um, surprise relationship. Oh, I mean, there's so many people who have, I, you know, a good example like Mark Meadows, for instance, someone whom I, you know, I really have very little uh, in common with in so many respects. But uh, we were always, I think decent to each other and jovial. And, uh, I think, uh, you know, now that he's the, he's, he's now the, uh, uh, the president's chief of staff, which is, I wasn't seeing that coming as we say. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we always maintained a, a, uh, well, I wouldn't say friendship, but more, uh, we didn't have a friendship, but it was more of a, a collegial, um, relationship. And 
Um, he's one example, but um, uh, Ron, uh, Rand Paul is another example of someone who I actually have um, a relationship with um, that again, and sometimes I really don't like the things he does, you know, and I, but at the same time, um, uh, you know, and, and part of that sometimes is, is the spousal connections as well. For instance, Rand's wife, Kelly, is very good friends with my wife, Casey. So, and so sometimes those social circles can come full circle. That's, you know, a big six foot five guy like me, uh, who's not a doctor, can, can have somewhat of a relationship with a, you know, libertarian Republican like Rand Paul uh, from Kentucky, you know, type of thing. A New Yorker in Kentucky can, so it's kind of interesting in, that, in those respects. So obviously, um, like really forging these relationships across the aisle is very important. And can you tell us a little bit about how you actually go about doing that and making compromises when it comes to um, legislation? Well, I think, you know, the difference here in terms of compromise, because I think the notion of compromise has gotten such a dirty, it's become like a dirty word in politics. I don't think anyone suspects or expects anyone to compromise a principled position. And that's never the case. But I do think there are things on the edge that can be done, especially on issues that aren't, aren't necessarily issues of moral turpitude. You know, the issue of, of trade, for instance, where I think Republicans have, you know, more often than not um, been able to, to uh, dominate as the pro-trade uh, party, so to speak, and Democrats being viewed as the anti-trade party. Where I do think there's more of a middle ground there. I think there are, there are aspects of trade that I think we need to change and improve upon in terms of the fairness of that trade, but at the same time, recognizing that the growth of our nation is dependent upon international trade. Um, so, and not only that from an economic point of view, but from a geopolitical point of view, that it's part of our alliance with other nations that if, you, if you're a friend of the United States, we're gonna treat you differently than we do adversaries or those who we don't have that relationship with. And I mean, that's the promotion of democracy, and free speech, and right to organize and all those things that I think Democrats we care about in those countries moving them you know maybe not wholesale but incrementally more and more and more towards that um, and uh, it's I think part of the responsibility of being the wealthiest nation in the world being the superpower that we are that we do uh, maintain that because I think the alternative to that is creating resentment and creating uh, disparity and and um, and that indifference uh, creates challenges for us down the road that I think we, we need to try to mitigate as much as we possibly can. So that's one example of it. So I do think, you know, there are opportunities to work in a bipartisan way uh, on a myriad of issues that don't really come into the issue uh, of, 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 of more turpitude or, or of, of, you know, like the death penalty or uh, on abortion or on, um, you know, gay marriage, which is whether there are more absolute isms involved in it. So is there one issue or one bill that you feel like should have gotten more media attention and, and coverage while you were in Congress? Gosh, I mean, <laughs> we were pretty good, pretty adept at getting our issues out. Um, I mean, I think that there's a tough question to answer only because I've been, I've been, I've been removed from it for almost two years now. Um, I think, um, you know, sometimes I think not many people were, were as acutely aware as to the role that I played in the formation of the Affordable Care Act in terms of the leadership in the House that I think um, 
I would have liked to have been, um, maybe I was a little too shy or not, not, not um, putting myself out enough to, to take, I think, some more of the credit uh, in terms of getting that passed through. And the, I think the same thing we said for the, uh, for the, the uh, Dodd-Frank legislation that played a, a very, I think, uh, important role uh, for moderates within the uh, Democratic caucus um, and, and moving that legislation through. So, um, but overall speaking, I was not someone who shied away from getting uh, uh, my fair share of attention, let's put it that way. <laughs> now that you've gotten the chance to kind of step back, what do you miss most about being in Congress? I, I definitely miss um, the interaction. Uh, I miss the action, you know, of being on the floor, of being on the campus of the Capitol, of walking around and picking up information and touching base with my colleagues. And um, uh, I miss that. I miss my colleagues in particular. I miss my, a lot of them were friends and we still, we do, we do still try to stay in touch in some respects, but it's not as easy to, to be there. Um, and in fact, I've, I've rarely been up on the Hill. Um, uh, probably can count on one hand how many times I've been up there since I've been out of office. So, um, so I miss my friends, but you know, uh, uh, they're always your friends if they're really your friends anyway. So we've, we've stayed in touch. So you were in Congress for a long time and you have a unique view on how the chamber has changed over time. From your experience, what do you view as the biggest ideological shift in congressional membership during the time you were there? I mean, we, we've seen the Tea Party, the progressive movement, kind of what do you think is, has been the biggest shift? Well, you made you mentioned the two biggest ones. I think um, post uh, the Affordable Care Act, you saw the the creation of um, the Tea Party, uh, and then which led to I think the uh, uh, the the Freedom Caucus in the in the in the Republican uh, conference, which has really I think been challenging to the leadership, certainly of the the, the two prior speakers, both Boehner and Ryan. Um, maybe less so to McCarthy, especially now that Mark Meadows is, is now going to be in the White House. Um, and uh, in many respects, I think the fallout from the 08 response uh, to the crash, the TARP legislation um, in particular, um, which I think uh, led to the creation of Occupy Wall Street, which led to, you know, after Hillary's demise, um, in 08 and, um, and, and 12, you know, with Obama's reelection, uh, really led to the, the rise of Bernie Sanders and the Bernie bros. And uh, for me personally, uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Justice Democrats, the brand new Congress, uh, is kind of was an amalgamation of folks who were involved in all that. Uh, that is, again, the rise of absolutism on both the left and the right, represented in in, in those two camps, basically the Bernieites and the and the um, uh, the uh, Freedom Caucus. So, do you think this ideological shift within the party um, on both sides was kind of a big contributing factor to your primary upset, or was there were there other factors that involved? Oh, there were other factors for sure. I do think that the the the, the rise of Bernie Sanders. You know, if you contemplate in Queens when he ran in 2016, um, he lost in Queens 62 to 38. He got 38% of the vote, Hillary Clinton 62. 
I suspect if that election were held again today, the number would be very similar. Um, to the fact that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was Bernie's campaign coordinator in the Bronx and was involved with the Justice Democrats and brand new Congress uh, with, um, uh, with those folks. And um, I think, you know, uh, they were looking for opportunities and my district looked like one because it was on a 70% minority district. It always had been. Um, but what I think is really interesting, um, and again, taking nothing away from Alexandria in terms of her win, because she won, and uh, kudos and you know, Godspeed, um, uh, is that you know, there were unique things that took place in this uh, primary. For one, the, the primary date itself was moved to, to June. Uh, typically, or normally, the primaries had been in September. And this was my first real challenge in June. Um, and um, which meant that we were not running uh, in alignment with uh, Governor Cuomo or the state legislature at that time. Um, so it really drove the turnout down. There was no, the, the turnout was not what it, it was like 12%, I think, or 13% of the uh, eligible voters voted in the election. Um, the other uh, is that uh, there were a number of factors going on. One, our polling indicated that we were doing very, very well. In fact, a, a, a um, a tracking poll that we had conducted a week before the primary showed us up substantially about 36 points. And then I lost by 15 points. That's a 51 point turnaround in a week uh, without anything actually happening to drive that. There was nothing that uh, actually took place, but for the fact that people who were expected to vote didn't vote. And so I say my mother didn't vote. That's what I always say. My mother voted. Don't get me wrong. She voted for me. Don't, don't scare you all. But people like her, uh, were not motivated to go out and vote. They didn't think, one, I was in jeopardy of losing my seat. Um, and my, my, my polling numbers came back very positive. I was, had high positives and very low negatives. So there wasn't really any sense that I was in danger in that sense. And the other part was that, um, you know, I was, I was a part of the House leadership. Um, talked about, you know, being moved up into a different capacity in the House leadership beyond chairman. Um, and any sign of weakness back to D.C. was something that I was trying to avoid. So we really, it wasn't about ignoring uh, AOC. It was really more about not bringing attention to the campaign. A, and to, to that, some, in many respects, that hurt me as well. That, uh, you know, Joe's going to be all right. You know, don't worry about Joe type of thing. He's going to get reelected. Um, what was remarkable in, in, in the end, when you look at uh, the numbers in terms of the turnout for my election versus the turnout in September when Governor Cuomo ran again with the state legislature, turnout was three and a half to four times higher in parts of the district, sometimes five times higher. And what was really interesting in tracking uh, the, 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 the number of votes that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got in my primary versus the number that Cynthia Nixon got in, um, in September were eerily very, very close. Um, but where the numbers really shifted were, I'm not saying that I would have gotten every vote that Andrew Cuomo got, but I think I would have got the overall preponderance of those votes. Um, and uh, whereas in some EDs, uh, he got, where I would win, my, 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 that election district, he would win about four or five or six times greater than I did, you know, with very little difference in the vote between Alexandria and Cynthia Nixon. So it was kind of an example. He, in the end, won my district uh, for governor against a, uh, a better known and more well-financed um, a person than Cynthia Nixon, a socialist Democrat, um, by 36 points, as a matter of fact. So. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So we're going to move on to our final lightning round here. So the first question is, what is your favorite Broadway musical? The favorite Broadway musical right now is one that's in production that I'm helping to bring to Broadway. It's called Paradise Square, and it's going to be a smashing hit. We'll be sure to look out for it. Um, if you could go to dinner with any historical figure, who would it be? Oh, wow. Uh, absolutely Abraham Lincoln. I'm a Lincoln file. I would love to have had dinner with Abraham Lincoln, for sure. What has been your favorite way to pass the time in quarantine? Oh, boy, my geopolitics class has been great. and My time with the students uh, and student time has been actually wonderful. Um, you know what I'm really grateful for is the opportunity to have my family around me. Uh, our oldest son, Colin, is at the Naval Academy, and my daughter, Kenzie, is at, uh, is at uh, CU Boulder. Uh, our youngest guy, Liam, is 14. He's been here at home. But to have our two older you know, kids home with us and our kids, young adults, we weren't expecting that. And um, it's been wonderful for Casey and I to, to, have them, to have them all here around us. So it's been great. So because this is our season finale, we kind of wanted to ask you, what was your favorite part of being a geopolitics fellow this semester? What I loved about it more than anything else is that I felt that I got more out of it than my than the students who participated in the sessions did. Um, I, I really enjoyed being around them when we, we, we could be together, uh, the body language and the, and uh, you know, just the tempo of the class is different when, or the session is different when you're together. But I have to say that, you know, by Zoom and, you know, by remote, it actually worked out very, very well. For my last class, I ended up, uh, I gave them a little surprise. You know, when I lost my primary, I sang Born to Run uh, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, at the end of, uh, in tribute to her, to her uh, I, at the end of the class, I, I did another Springsteen song. I did Thunder Road, which is one of my all-time favorites, along with Rosalita and about two dozen other songs, but I chose, I chose Thunder Road for that. Well, thank you so much, Representative Crowley, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Dalton. Thank you, Grace, very thank much. Good to be with you all. Cheers. And stay safe, stay healthy. As we wrap up the semester, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in for yet another great season of Fly on the Wall. We'll also have some unique content coming to you this summer. So for all the latest updates, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. In the meantime, if you're looking for something to do in quarantine, shoot us a message at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com or catch up on any of our fantastic episodes. We hope you all learned something this season along with us. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.